Our text for our message this morning, we return to our series in Hebrew. We are in the 10th chapter, Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 1, if you turn there in your Bibles. And if you're using one of our pew Bibles, please turn to page 1202, where you will find that text, page 1202. Our text today presents another of the contrasts we've become used to in the book of Hebrews. However, the beginning of the text, which we'll be looking at today, presents a negative side of that contrast. That's often what we've seen. There is a positive and a negative that is balanced as we have seen these many contrasts. We might say that today, the beginning of our text, it somewhat presents to us the bad news. Now, in our world today, we're very accustomed to that. We don't have to look far, unfortunately, to find bad news. Just this morning, riots in Dallas over the ongoing issues of racism. The Boston protests yesterday. Six police officers shot in three different U.S. cities Friday in Jacksonville and Kissimmee in West Pennsylvania. The Virginia aberrant racism issues. The mass stabbings in Finland, the bombings in Barcelona, and all of this in the last few days. There's a lot of bad news around our world. And yet, even with this bad news of our world, there is still much good news. And there is always a contrast. And the darker that the bad news gets, the brighter that the good news shines forth. And this is where our title comes from this morning. I've titled our text for the morning, The Captivating Contrast of Christ. The Captivating Contrast of Christ. Hebrews chapter 10, as I mentioned, is our text. And to begin with, I want to read our first 10 verses. Follow along, if you would, with me, please, in your Bibles. Hebrews 10 and verse 1. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually, year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would have not ceased to be offered because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sins, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me, to do your will, O God. After saying above sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sins you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law, then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. The captivating contrast of Christ. 
We've seen so many contrasts already in this great book of Hebrews as we've gotten to this middle section that is exalting the supremacy of Jesus Christ. It began by showing us the contrast of ministries. And we saw on the one hand the earthly ministry of the priesthood, which really was an exceptional ministry as these men for hundreds and even thousands of years carried forth to honor the word of the Lord to bring the sacrifices which he had required in the Pentateuch and particularly in the Levitical law. But even in that sacrifice it was far, far less sufficient than was that sacrifice of Christ. And the ministry of Christ was a, an, a heavenly ministry and so far, far above the earthly ministry of the high priest. We saw the second contrast that existed in the contrast of the covenants. That old covenant, that Mosaic covenant, where the people entered in with God and they had a responsibility. Their faithfulness was required in order to keep the contract, in order to keep the covenant. But indeed they were not faithful and they violated it. But the new covenant of Christ, it does not require that faithfulness in that way for man to be obedient because all of the work has been done by Christ. So it is far above that old covenant. We saw the comparison of tabernacles and the old earthly tent that was in the wilderness, beautiful as it was with all of its gold fixtures and furnishings and a stunning piece to be certain was nothing alongside of the heavenly tabernacle which Christ is now in. And then we saw last the contrast of the blood. The blood of the animals that were sacrificed year by year versus the blood of Christ. Now there's, there's a great parallel as we move to our next contrast in our text today and for the next few weeks and we contrast the sacrifices that is the earthly versus the heavenly sacrifice. There is a tremendous connectivity to that idea of the blood obviously but there's a unique component which exalts the superiority of Christ in an even more amazing way. And that's what we've seen at each step. There has been a greater escalation of Christ's superiority so that those Hebrew worshipers had no choice but to recognize that they must yield to the supremacy and superiority of Christ and not seek to add him to their existing system. And that's what we find as we come to chapter 10 in our first point in the message this morning. That first point I've titled The False Sanctification. The False Sanctification. Verse 1 begins by taking us back to the law. Now, that, that's what we see at the, uh, at the very first word of that verse for the law. Now, we can't take for granted which law is being referenced. There's a lot of different references to law and that particular word in the scripture. There is the law of man. There is the law of the heart. There's the law of the mind. There is the law of sin. The law of liberty. The law of faith. And there are yet more laws which are in the scripture. Many, many of them. But it's important for us to understand which law is being talked about. We understand even in our day that there's a plethora of different laws, don't we? We understand that there are speeding laws and there are dog leash laws. And when you're driving in your car, you're going to be a lot more concerned about one than the other. But we need to understand all of those laws as well. Well, our text, as we know, is written to the Jewish 
audience of the Hebrews in Rome? Well, this helps us know which law is being talked about. The Old Testament primarily referenced the law, which is the Mosaic law. Because these believers are of Jewish descent, the Mosaic law is most likely and the choice which we see fits our text. When we think of that Mosaic law, we're taken back to Mount Sinai. We're reminded of all that God did when he brought the exiles out of Egypt and into the wilderness and brought them to Mount Sinai and had Moses prepare them to purify themselves for three days before Moses brought them before the Lord on Mount Sinai. And God came down in the cloud and the fire and the smoke billowed from the top of the mountain and God spoke to the people. And he gave them his Ten Commandments. And he gave them the laws in Exodus 19 and Exodus 20. And it is a fascinating and stunning account. Dominating to be certain so much so that the people who heard said to Moses, don't let us talk to God anymore. You go ahead and talk to God for us. We'll just go ahead and stay in the background. Because it was a fearful thing for them. As indeed it should have been. So we're talking here about this Mosaic law. Well, next it talks about the law having only a shadow of the good things to come. Well, what is, what is that idea of shadow reflecting for us? Well, the word shadow actually begins the Greek sentence. It is in the most emphatic position. It is the most important part of this first verse. This is where the idea of false sanctification from our first point comes from. The law is just a shadow. Well, what do we know when we think about shadows? Primarily, we understand that they're not the real thing, are they? They, they captivate us and, and they draw a lot of our attention. Now, when I was a younger boy, and perhaps some of you will remember this, there was actually a cartoon that was all about shadows. It was called Spy versus Spy. And so there was a whole TV program that they had lined up around shadows. When I was in architecture school, I spent hundreds of hours practicing to draw shadows. Because in design class, the way that you illuminated and that you properly showed the shadow made that 2D picture come to life. It showed that there was some reality. It showed that the picture had a real image to it. Because the shadow conveys the reality of the subject. The shadow is a representation of that image. Well, when we see a shadow, we, we wonder what it is that made it. Now, I don't know about you. I've been blessed to be able to spend a lot of time in the outdoor and have loved every moment of it. When I see rock formations in the mountains, particularly in the earlier morning or evening, and the shadows that they cast, they're stunning. The shadows that buildings and bridges cast in cities are amazing to me. When you think of the shadows of Bryce Canyon, Arches National Park, the Grand Canyon, they're absolutely beautiful to behold. And we don't have to go to nature to find them. If you have not been downtown in Mobile and checked out the shadows from the judicial building with those round curved tops, go check it out some particularly earlier morning or late evening. They're stunning. Absolutely beautiful to see what the sun does as it casts that arch down upon the ground. But what this reminds us is, is that the shadow is just that. It is something that is cast by a substance. 
It doesn't reflect that from, or, or it does reflect that from which it's generated. It doesn't come of its own. So even the shadow is an expression of that which is to come. Well, here the word shadow is figurative. It's representing a mental image for us. It isn't a real shadow that's being talked about like we cast from a light that's overhead. But it's a shadow of the good things to come, the text tells us. So as we picture this shadow, we're drawn to consider what is the image that's being painted on our mind by the shadow of the good things which are to come. Well, it, it creates a sense of wonder, doesn't it? It creates a sense of anticipation. Good things to come. We all love good things to come. The, the boys are in their last week here at home, and Karen has been, you know, making all their favorite meals, and she made Thanksgiving dinner the other night and made two pies, which we're still eating on too ferociously to try to keep up with Averill's pie consumption. But it was an anticipation. As those pies were baking, they were filling the house. And I'm like, yeah, I'm ready for some homemade pie. It's that anticipation that's coming. It's like a child at Christmas time. He sees the gift under the, under the tree and it's got my name on it. I'm excited about what's in there. Well, this is what's being presented. Colossians 2.17 uses the word shadow as well and gives us further insight into what the good things to come are. Colossians chapter 2 and 17 says, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So now we don't have to be left to be wondering what is the good thing to come. The good thing to come is Christ. That is what this shadow is representing. It is the substance that is yet still coming for them. It is the return of our Lord when he will dwell upon the earth. And a beautiful comparison of that shadow which we can't perfectly see but we understand is coming from a real substance. So the law is only a shadow and not the real thing. But verse 1 tells us that the real thing is good. It says it's a good thing. Well, what does good mean? In our world of superlatives, those great expressions of everything and all of these adjectival remarks, when someone asks you how you're doing and you say good, they think, well, maybe he's not so good. And if you're fine, you're probably bad. Because in our world, everything is great or it is amazing, it is outstanding. All of these great adjectives that describe all that's going on. But we're not talking about the world's view of adjectives. We're talking about the good things that God talks about. When the scripture talks about good things, what do we go back to? I go back to Genesis 1. And I see each and every day, and there was morning and evening, and it was good. Six days in a row, and it was good. And the Lord looked on everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And all that had come into existence had come by the spoken word of our Lord in six days. That, beloved, is very, very good. Well, the good things to come are those mentioned in Hebrews back chapter 9 and verse 11, just a few verses back. They are the heavenly good things, the eternal hope of the believer. As we have 
celebrated the homegoings of these beloved members of our church. What a joy it has been. Yes, great sorrow, particularly for the family members who love them so and miss them so. But what joy to know that they are in heaven. They're in the presence of our Savior. They're free from all of the pain which they have suffered for so long. Free from the struggle which sin, which surrounds us every day. What a joy to recognize these. These are the glories. These are the good things. These are the hopes that we have. And as we look forward, that is a shadow that I can't wait to see the fulfillment of. The false sanctification is further confirmed in the next clause of verse 1 where it says, not the very form of things. This is the first of five negations in these first two verses. That is, five negative words in two verses. That's a lot of negative words. Words like not or never or no. In your English Bibles, you only see four of those. There are five actually in the Greek text. And that's how we know that our author, Paul, is conveying a false notion to us in these first two verses because he uses five negations. This is the false sanctification. The law, which is a shadow of the good things, is not the very form of the things, as the middle of the verse conveys. This word form in the Greek is the word icon. It's where we get our English word icon. A word we're very familiar with. In our Bible footnote, it says that word can mean image, which is also a good translation, and ties us back to the word shadow, although it is much, much more. Because a shadow is something that is cast from something. An image is the very picture. And these are being contrasted in our text. In the ancient world, this term icon meant an image that was made from a stamp or a seal such as the emperor or the governor's seal, often on their ring. And so they would make a wax image and they would press their ring into it. And it would show their authority and it would show their mark. And this is what Pilate gave to Caiaphas in order to seal the tomb after they had put the Lord in it. And he said, make it as secure as you, knew, as you know how. In the, in the ancient world, that was as secure as it would be. They would put an icon, they would put a stamp, a mark, an image, a form onto it, and that was the governor or the emperor's seal. For computer users in the world today, we all understand icon. There's those little thumbnails that are all over our desktops that we click and they take us to our various programs or applications. It's a picture of something. The word icon used to have a very different meaning in our country, say 30 years ago. It was a word that drew us to think about a person of greatness. Perhaps Eisenhower or MacArthur. You can put in general or pastor, and I think both fit. The dictionary tells us that Elvis Presley was a cultural icon of the 20th century. I think that's a fair definition. This is really more in line with the meaning of our word form. Because it's drawing us to understand a specific individual of greatness. The form of the one to come who is Christ. But the law is not the very form, but only a shadow of that good thing. One other clue exists in our phrase, form of the things. And it is that word, things. Now, I have talked about this a number of times. You know that as we went through preaching class, those instructors would say, whenever you're preaching, don't use the word things in your sermon. 
it's ambiguous, it could mean any kind of thing. So get a real word and put it in there. And yet here we are in the Bible with the word things. Well, things is an accurate translation. Most Greek dictionaries, which we call lexicons, translate this word things as matters. That's a little better. The ESV actually uses realities, which is still somewhat better than things. At least it conveys something else is going on. But I like the translation affairs. You see, the word things means legal matters. It is a word that is talking about a legal transaction. This is important because it gives us more information about what the shadow is pointing towards and what the real form is that is coming. That form or that image, it is a legally binding thing. It is a condition which is going to be a transaction. This is a very important consideration as we understand the contrast of the sacrifices. This, this shadow of the law is not the very form of things. It's not the icon of the legal matter which is coming. You see, when we consider this, we're, we're not spoiling the Christmas gift surprise to the child by revealing the icon. As we've said, the icon is Jesus Christ. The legal matter is what refers to the great exchange, the doctrine of imputation. And I, I know that's a big seminary kind of word, but it is a very, very important word. To impute something means to exchange, to receive something in exchange for something else, something in which you are a passive participant. That is, you are exchanged something, something is given to you and something taken from you and you have no role in it. Now in most things in our world, that would be a negative situation, but not here. Because here, the legal transaction that's being talked about, the doctrine of imputation is how we impute Christ's righteousness to ourselves and he takes our wretched sinfulness. This is the glorious exchange. This is a legal transaction like never has nor ever will happen again. Next, we see why or the because of this previous shadow. Look at the end of verse 1 again with me. For it can never by the same sacrifices which they offer continually, year by year, make perfect those who draw near. This shadow can never make perfect those who draw near. The word perfect is used throughout Hebrews. We've seen it over and over again. And it is a reference to salvation. That is the perfection that awaits us. Salvation. The gift of Jesus Christ of eternal life. That is the matter which we are waiting for. That is the excitement that is going on here. Dr. MacArthur observes this to be one of the most important components of the believer's life. The perfection of salvation that we understand today. If you are here and you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you know a joy and you know a peace that is beyond anything the world will ever have the smallest inkling of. And yet, that is just a glimpse today. Eternally, we will know so much more. That is the eternal hope. This is the, the good thing that is coming to us. This is the sanctification. The fact that we are seen as righteous in God's eyes 
And that we have become positionally sanctified as, and seen by God right now as righteous and holy. And yet we have an ongoing battle with sin. That we have to fight each and every day. But we are now seen by God in a positional place of honor and glory. Here also is our second of five negations, the false sanctification with the word never. Can never. Now we know the shadow has to do with the law at the beginning of the verse. And we get another picture of the shadow. It is a sacrifice that's offered year by year. Now we have gone through this book of Hebrews and I've been asking you to read a little bit in Leviticus. And so you are very familiar with the sacrifices we've talked about. Those that are here mentioned as continually offered year by year. Now if we went back to Leviticus, we would think of those five offerings. Do you remember them from the book of Leviticus? The burnt offering was the first that was described. The grain offering next. Then there was the peace offering, followed by the sin offering, and concluding with the guilt offering. All of these which were going on, not just year by year, but they're going on day by day. Because as the believer, the worshiper in that day recognized his sin, he had to keep coming back to the altar. He had to keep coming back with these sacrifices. But the specificity of this term, year by year, it focuses on one particular sacrifice. It focuses on the Day of Atonement. That one day when the high priest went before God. We remember how dramatic that was. The priest waited all year. They were assigned to this job. He had to go in before the Holy of Holies. He had to take the blood of the sacrifice inside. Inside to the Ark of the Covenant. Inside to the mercy seat where the Lord sat. Inside to where the cherubim of glory spread their golden wings over the top. And he had to offer that sacrifice. And if he was impure, well, we know what happened to Nadab and Abihu for just bringing bad incense in. God smokes them on the spot. So in case that happens again, they tie the rope around the priest's legs. And he has the special robe with bells on it. So when the bell stops jingling... And when they pull on the rope and there's no pullback, they know it didn't go so well. So we'll just pull him on back out. It was a dramatic day. The Day of Atonement was this cleansing of the nation. And yet, despite that cleansing, it never made the worshiper perfect. Immediately, sin began to accrue again. And these sacrifices were those who could never make perfect those who drew near. This idea of not making perfect is exactly what we saw back in Hebrews 9, 9. You can glance back there with me. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 9. It says there, which is a symbol for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience. Even the conscience cannot be made perfect. Even just the thought of sin could not be taken care of, let alone the continuous reality of that sin. Because there was an ever-present recognition of the escalating nature of sin. Immediately the offering was made, and for that moment, you had brought your offering to God. But again, the sin began to accrue, and it began to build 
Well, this inadequacy of the sacrifice is further explained in verse 2 in our first point, the false sanctification as it continues. And verse 2 begins with a logical argument. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? The implication is that if these sacrifices could make the worshiper perfect, wouldn't they just stop? This, by the way, is our third of five negations, in case you're keeping track. If the sacrifices were able to present the worshiper as perfect, then there would be no need for them to continue. But this is contrary to what we saw back in verse 1. Namely, that these sacrifices did occur year by year. Actually, they were going on every day. So clearly, there was no true cleansing. This was false sanctification. Verse 2 continues this line of argumentation where it says, because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have consciousness of sins. If true cleansing had occurred, there would be no consciousness of sin. But as we saw in Hebrews 9.9, it was unable to cleanse. Verse 10 of Hebrews 9 further clarifies that these sacrifices were only external. They were only for food and washing rituals. Verse 7 of Hebrews 9 further adds that these are only for the sins which are committed in ignorance. What is all that telling us? The cleansing of these sacrifices of the old system, they were only temporary. And they were only partial. There's no way that they could cleanse the conscience, let alone the body. Verse 2 sets up a picture that each reader can assess and understand. And that's just how it's presented. It's brought as if our author is saying, look for yourselves. Look for yourselves. Is there any way this could have provided true cleansing? And the answer is no. You know, it reminds me of, of uh, the illustration of a child going to wash his hands before an evening meal. You know, they've been out playing in the mud all day, and they run in the bathroom, and about three seconds later, they come back out and go, okay, ready for dinner. You know, barely got water on the back of the hands, let alone the front, and certainly no soap could even have been considered in the process. And they're saying, oh yeah, hands are clean, ready to eat. We know there's no way that they're clean. And we know that there is no way that these sacrificial elements provided cleansing. Just as there's no way man can be good enough to get to heaven on his own. None of these systems were enough. These works righteousness systems can never cleanse the worshiper. It's what we talked about on Wednesday night. We looked into and we talked about the, uh, the Catholicism tracts we have back on the back table. And I'd encourage you to grab one of those and to look it over. It's a beautiful piece. And it shows us why, although the Catholics hold to the doctrines of the deity of Christ, that because of their denial of the salvific work of grace in salvation, that they in fact have established a work system of righteousness where you must obey these particular acts to get to heaven. And all religions are that way, those that do not truly profess Jesus Christ as Lord. You see, if we're really going to be truthful about it, it's not at all about religion. 
It's only about relationship. It's your relationship with Jesus Christ that will get you to heaven. Not which church you go to, not how long you've attended, not how much you give. No, it's not that at all. Because as, though, as, as thankful as we are that we are Baptists and that we believe we hold as best we can in a denominational tendency, before we are Baptists, beloved, we must be biblicists. Our first point, the false sanctification then, leads us to our second point, the failed substitution in verses 3 to 4. Now in verse 3, we see another negative contrast. Look at it with me. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. The verse begins with the strong contrast, but. It's the same strong contrast we see in verses like Ephesians 2.4 where it's just talked about how we are dead in our trespasses and sins, in our transgressions, and unable to save ourselves. But then verse 4 starts, But God, being rich in mercy. What a glorious picture that is. We're dead, we have no hope, there's nothing for us but God. Well, we begin with that same transition here. Now, although these sacrifices were the false sanctification, there is something new to note. Namely, that they were a reminder. They did bring to recall something very, very powerful. And that powerful reminder is what was evidenced in the blood of all those sacrifices. Think about how horrific that was. Think about thousands and thousands of animals being sacrificed. And you, as the worshiper, you, as the guilty sinner, bringing that spotless lamb, and you taking the knife from the priest, and taking the lifeblood from that animal. A horrific thought. And that's exactly what it was supposed to be. It, it, it burdens our sensitivities, particularly in our sterilized day and age of going to the grocery store and we have the, the meat that we buy all nicely packaged and wrapped and then we take it home and, and we eat it. You know, when I grew up on the farm in Montana, it wasn't that way. When we got chickens, you went out and you got them. Grandma took the axe, boom. It was a scary picture. And as a little kid, it was a little frightening. But... There is a reminder in that sacrifice. There is a reminder in that blood. And that reminder is the price that has been paid. The reminder of the blood was the reminder of sin. What a grotesque picture was the bloodbath of these sacrifices. But it brought to remembrance the grotesque situation of sin. The result of sin and all that occurred. The three primary realms which sin destroys in every life. When sin is reigning in our lives, there is no true peace. There is no true joy. Because we are ridden with guilt. Guilt within ourselves and guilt towards others. It also erases and makes a separation between us and God. Psalm 5.4 tells us that God will not dwell in sin. If we are living in sin, we cannot expect that God will dwell with us, for he can have no part in that. Not only does it rob us of peace, not only does it separate us from God, but it is the cause of death. The physical death which each of us will suffer, 
And then for those that do not know Christ, the eternal death. For there are two deaths that each will face that are not believers in Christ. Because the scripture tells us, first comes death, then the judgment. Tom did a beautiful job in speaking about that at Michael's services this past week. It is a reminder year by year. The same identical phrase back from verse 1. And not only are the sacrifices to remind them of sin, but especially to remind them of the day of atonement. One day per year, when but for a few moments, the worshiper was cleansed of these sins. And these only partial as we've seen. Not to mention, the worshiper didn't even know when that moment was. Everybody knew it was the Day of Atonement. It's Yom Kippur. We know that there's a specified time. The priest is going to go in and he is going to make the offering. And at some point, there is some moment when that offering is made and God receives it that I am cleansed. But no one really knows at what time that is. Because he has to first go make offering for himself. And then he has to go out. Then he has to make offering again for the people as he goes back in. So you didn't know when it was actually going to happen. You've been waiting all this time, waiting to be cleansed from those unknown sins for that year. You didn't know exactly when it happened. And the moment that it passed, the sins began to accrue again. Think about that remembrance. Think about that guilt of understanding that sin that was continually upon you. And then with that remembrance ringing in your mind, you come to verse 4. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Here is the failed substitution. Not only does your sin immediately begin to accrue and accrue all year long, but even that offering doesn't take away the sin. It's impossible, as verse 1 says. There's absolutely no way as verse 4 says, no way that this sacrifice can do so. It can in no way be a substitute. The last part of the verse further elaborates on this where it says to take away sins. The emphasis of that verb take away is an unending emphasis or a durative form. In other words, it is impossible for these to ever take away sins. The year-by-year -year idea of the Day of Atonement is emphasized further by the blood of bulls and coat, of goats. You remember how extremely precise our author is in this discussion. We go back to chapter 9, and he spoke of the blood of goats and calves. And then another place he speaks about the blood of goats and calves and the ashes of the heifer. Of the heifer. He even, as he, as he mentions these, we see that there is a change in that order. And they make us stop and recognize that they're talking about specific references by using that order and using those specific animals. But notice now, he returns to the blood of bulls and goats. That is the proper order and the proper animal for the Day of Atonement sacrifice. The bull being the sacrifice for himself and his own sin. And the goat being the sacrifice for the nation of Israel. And all of this confirming the heinousness of sin. The ultimate of offenses. An offense for which offering could only be made once a year. And even then it didn't take the sin away. 
God is making a massive point here, don't you think? The false sanctification, the failed substitution. Beloved, I, I fear we think far too little and far too lightly of sin. It is a most horrific condition. It is a condition into which we are born. It is a condition in which we live each and every day. Look at the horrific conditions described here. Imagine the effect and the feel of this situation. My dear brothers and sisters, do we daily consider the horrors of sin? We must each understand the bad news. But there is an important reason to do so. And it isn't that we won't live in discouragement, although certainly at this point that seems like that would be a good thing. But God does not want us to live and to wallow in this pit of despair. No, he pointed us to the good news back in verse 1. These things that are the shadow of the good things to come. The very form of the image and the icon of that which is coming. That good news is Jesus Christ. It is that your sins can be forgiven. Not partially, not temporarily, but completely and eternally. What an incredible blessing for us. We don't have to feel guilty about that. Uh, I, I know, you know, I know I'm going to sin. I know just that, that's the way it is. I, I look into God's word and I see it and, and I know I'm going to fall short again and oh my gosh, I'm going to be building that sin and that sin's going to accrue and accrue and I'm just going to feel so horrible and I'm not going to want to talk to anybody and I'm not going to go to church and I'm going to move away from all God's people because I just, this sin is burdening me. No! Christ has paid that price. You are free from that sin. There's no reason to allow it to burden you. There's no reason that it ought convict and condemn you. He has paid the price. And it's not just for the blessing in this life. It is the eternal provision of heaven. It is the time when we are free from that sin. Oh, what a delight it will be to understand and to be apart from the physical affliction of this world as those that we each bear those minor maladies, those temporary light afflictions of this life, as we see those whom we've loved and known going through cancers and horrifically difficult circumstances, but the freedom from sin, the being released from this bondage of no longer realizing or having to consider all of these effects, what a glorious provision that will be. But to know this good news, you must know the bad news. Only then does this go from an average superlative of good news to the greatest news ever and the most amazing news ever and the incredibly fabulous news, the awesome news of Jesus Christ and his gospel. It's a radical departure from the bad news of this world. It's a 180 degree turn from the description of being eternally guilty and condemned from unremoved sin. But in order for that sin to be removed, you must confess it. That word confess is the same word where we get our English word homogenized, all of the same. And to confess means to say the same thing as God about our sin. That's what we're doing. When we confess our sin to God, we're saying, God, I know I am a sinner and my sin makes me eternally guilty and condemns me to hell. 
because it is an offense against you and you only. That's what confessing is. And then we must not only confess, we have to turn from it. We have to make that 180 degree turn. That is what repenting is. It is no longer following that. I'm not going to follow the lusts of this flesh. I'm not going to follow the covetousness of this earth. I'm not going to follow the things of this world, but I am going to follow Christ. And then, as you have confessed, as you have repented and turned, then you must live in light of that truth. Live in the power of the Spirit of God who gives repentance, who gives the power to confess, who gives the understanding of sin, and live in the glorious light of Christ. Only then is one truly possessing the gospel of Jesus Christ. For only then is one living out this good news. You know, at Michael's funeral, his nephew Michael said, Mikey as they call him, he said that when he died, it was like a switch was turned on. Or when he came to know the Lord, it was like a switch was turned on. He was a totally different person. The answer becomes, is that us? Because that's what true salvation looks like. I am a totally different person. They talked about Mike. He, he, would, be in, uh, he would be in a restaurant, and he had a pocket full of CDs that Miss Steel, Jean Steelman would keep him in. Uh, maybe as many as 400 of these CDs from a service that Dr. Lawson did, a funeral that he had done. And he would walk up to the table and he would ask them if they know Christ. And he would leave a CD on the table and ask them to listen to it. And, and, and there Mikey was with a CD in his pocket that Mike had left him. Is this us? Is it a continuous testimony? Is every moment of our life consumed with Christ? Does the joy and the peace exude through us so that everyone knows, yes, I am a follower of Christ? Not that they see us as glorious or righteous. We are not that. We are sinners. But it is him that is righteous. And it's him that we have to point to. This is the glorious truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the rest of the good news of Ephesians 2.4. Where it says, But God being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, in our transgressions made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. I want to ask you today, do you know that truth? Does this live out in your life? Has the light switch gone on and you are totally different? Abandoned from this world, reckless for the Lord. And everybody knows, that guy there, he's one of those Jesus freaks. Amen! That's what we've all got to be. Because this world is going to hell in a handbasket. And we see it all around us in the bad news of this world. We have the answer. It is this book. It is this gospel. It is this Savior alone. Beloved, every one of us sins every day. Unconfessed and unrepentant sin leads to the bad news that we see in the world all around us today. Those men didn't get up one day, those terrorists, and say, you know, I think today I'm just going to go load up a car bomb and go drive into a bunch of people. No. That sin built, and it built, and it built. And so we have a choice to make. Will you choose to live in this world with its self-made righteousness? 
Or will you choose to daily recognize your sin? To continuously confess and repent of it? And to live in the glorious light of the gospel of Jesus Christ? It's a stimulating consideration. Actually, it's the captivating contrast of Christ. Christ.